Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. Indie Game Business is recorded live on Mixer and produced by the Powell Group. Check us out at IndieGame.Business. Now, let's start the show with your hosts, Jay Powell and me, Indy. You've got to check out our Discord at discord.gg slash business. It's an amazing community of over 3,500 other industry experts. We've got developers, publishers, marketing and PR firms, investors, so, so many, so many. It's safe and supportive place to network and to talk to experts. You can learn more about the business of games or you can share what you know with others. We have exclusive workshops on perfecting your pitch deck finding a publisher, and more. Remember, it's discord.gg slash indie game business. What's up, everybody? My name is Indy, and that gentleman way over there looking very astute on the end, that's Mr. J. Powell from <laughs> Powell Group Consulting, and welcome to Indie Game Business. Today, our special guest is Tronster. Hey, Tron Tronster everywhere. Every, every every social media account is Tronster. And believe it or not, that's his name, which is pretty awesome. I, I want to know how, what, what your parents were thinking when they named you Tronster. Oh, man, I, I get that a lot. Usually if it's like someone asks about the name and it's like a, you know, a quick setting, I just say, I'm a quarter check and I'll leave it at that. Um, love my Czech heritage, but um, my my birth name was was uh, an average name, and when I was early twenties, mm -hmm. I was already in the computer bulletin board scene and doing art and games under the moniker Tronster. And a uh, coworker is like, "Hey, look, five million women change their name every year. It's not that <laughs> big of a deal." And so I just you know had it legally changed in my early twenties. Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's interesting. I, I was because I was like Indy. I was like, who would have thought to name their child Tronster? But right, maybe well, I should just change my name to Indy then. You could do it. Yes, <laughs> you absolutely should. That's interesting. So, tell us how you got into the industry initially, and then walk us through what you've done. Because as as I've said, you are partially responsible for thousands of hours of my life that are that I, I no longer have. So, but <laughs> what, walk us through everything. Okay, I'll uh, I try not to. I'll give the the medium version. Um, you know, into games. I grew up in the 80s and 90s, loved arcades, wanted to make games. So I went to a college at a Ohio Wesleyan University, computer science, to get a good foundation. As soon as I got out of college, um, I applied to EA and, um, you know, all, all the major, major uh, publishers and studios. Didn't have any experience, so I didn't hear back or just got rejections and had a mountain of student debt. And so um, got a job outside of the industry um, making computer-based testing. So if anyone listening has to take a certification exam at an ETS testing center, you probably used a really boring non-game product I made in the late 90s, early 2000s with a, with a great team. And then, um, I don't know, after a while, a friend of mine's like, hey, you really should check out the Game Developers Conference. I'd start reading Game Developers Magazine. And I thought, you know, 
maybe I'll, I'll start to plug myself into this world and uh, signed up as a conference associate because, holy cow, it's so expensive to go there. And um, even with a corporate job, you know, I, I still was spending, taking a week of vacation time off to attend, but airfare, hotel, the $2,000 badge, even in the early aughts was like, so being a conference associate, you know, saved a few thousand dollars there and instantly connected me with like 400 people who were either in the game industry or were students or other people just looking to, to break in. And um, that started my connection with the industry. Uh, after a while, I did some consulting and then um, I had a job making backup software, which was even more boring than making computer-based testing. But <laughs> the money was ridiculous it was something like 70 dollars an hour and there were no there was no cap but um like i had my, my soul was like gone it was like i felt very empty inside the ceo was he was he was pretty much a a, a jerk and um i found out there was an opening available at breakaway games on some triple a title i had no idea what it was um found out it was command and conquer 3 uh, during the interview process, and I had an opportunity to jump ship. I uh, already, already quit the, the job. I had nothing lined up, and I could jump over there for like a third of what I was making for backup software. Uh, and it was like the best decision I ever made. You know, it was like, I could still keep the lights on at home, but I was working on Command and Conquer. Uh, around the same, the same year, just a lot was happening. We started the Baltimore chapter of the IGDA, got together with some of the game designers, and we, we founded that. Um, pretty soon afterwards, started getting involved with MAGFest, and um, one of the, a good buddy of mine was the executive director, and he, he told us every year, you should check out MAGFest, you should check this out, and uh, would offer us up free tickets. And uh, we came one year, and he's like, you know what, like, we, uh, we really want to go and start an indie showcase. I was like, oh, that's a great idea. He's like, okay, will you do it? <laughs> so... Um, you know, that's uh, where I really started to get deep into the indie game business was from starting the MAGFest Indie Video Game Showcase uh, with another guy on the West Coast, uh, Gabriel Gutez. And, um, you know, over the years, I've collected these stories. I I've had my own studio, but, like, the biggest deal we did there was, like, a $10,000 deal that went bad. Um, but that's that's another story I could share or not. And uh, wanted to come on because I've, I've loved the podcast, been listening for about a half year. And um, whenever I go out and speak to indies, one of the things I hope to do is to spread some of the knowledge so that they won't fall into some of the traps that um, I've seen some of the indies who've come to MAGFest have, have fallen into because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a hard business and time, you want to save as much time and money as possible. So that's a, that's a quick spiel. Uh, I glossed over a lot of stuff. I can fill in any gaps if, if need be. But hold on, I was typing, so I had my, my mic muted. It, it's interesting, and, and because you actually have like one of the more normal stories about getting into the industry. You know, it's not like a lot of the rest of us, and it was just like, okay, completely random. I ended up taking this like hourly job, but you actually almost had a goal and, and went in and did it. And it, it is funny that even you know, GDC even back then cost as much money because that's like one of the things they always say. It's like, well, we haven't raised the prices that much. It's like, yeah, I know, but it was too fucking expensive back then too. It's not like, you know, it got that much better. Um, so 
this is interesting because you know we run events you've run magfest the or you know the indie side of it right. where what are some of those oh my god warning signs because even before this like pandemic hit there's a shitload of shows going on globally, you know, all year long. And so if a developer wanted to, you know, they could spend every week of the year on the road going to some events. So when you're looking at events and when you're, you know, organizing your own, walk us through some of the the signs that you look for to make sure that the things that they are doing, the things that they aren't doing, that sort of stuff. Right. And that's, that's a good point because I feel like I feel like if someone is going to put a show together and there's a lot of warning signs that um, a lot of indies know it in the back of their mind, their, their spider sense is tingling, but a lot of it's glossed over because they you know they see that it's they've got a game, they have something awesome to show off, and may ignore some of the warning signs. But like with any show, you know, whether it be online or um, in person, there's that opportunity cost. I think one of the things that's awesome about online conferences is that it's just so much more cost effective for an indie to be able to participate. Whereas going to a big conference, it really needs to be worth the money um, and the time to go to it. So, right, so wait, let me stop you real quick. Explain opportunity cost because that's a very good point but not everybody's going to know what that is right explain that real quick sure that's i mean that's like a uh, i guess that's a, a classic business school term that um if there is if there are two or more opportunities and um opportunity a um means might cost a hundred dollars to attend a conference and get a booth and there will be maybe 5,000 people there, but then there's opportunity B, and it's $1,000 to go to it, but there are 20,000 people there. You know, if you do, you can only do one or the other. And if you do one thing, you're basically, the opportunity cost means you're not gonna be doing the other event. What you really want is to find an opportunity C, something that's like cheap to enter, but that's gonna have a big impact and by, Spending your time and effort on that one opportunity, it means that you will not be, you won't be able to spend time on those other events. But it's like that that article that came out in the game industry biz recently. It was um, about the indies. I think you might have written a follow up article on about um, an indie trying to hit nine different conventions or something in a year. Yes. And the even if the opportunity costs worked out so that you're not missing other conventions, that's the time that's taken away from working on the product and working on the studio, particularly if you're a small indie team, like I don't understand how you can go to so many conventions and still make a game um, if you were the developers who are both making the game and you're trying to to pitch it. That was an extreme example because even when I read that, I'm like, how in the hell are you justifying? nine conferences and yeah i mean you're right they had a there was an article and then i did a i did a follow-up article we talked a little bit about it last week but yeah go ahead sorry yeah so that i mean that's just like the, the key thing you want i i mean i i would feel like whenever i was doing indie work um again a small studio haven't done much with it but would always be looking at like it needs to be worthwhile and um so like one of the things we do for magfest indie video game showcase that MIBS call it is the component that I helped found and 
Um, and they're help uh, oversee in another capacity, but there's some other uh, department heads that now run it and are doing an excellent job. Ironically, one of them is the guy who got me, uh, convinced me to go to the Game Developers Conference all those years later, has, has taken it on. Um, but uh, yeah, is to go and actually make it easier for indies to showcase in person because you know the budget is so important and a lot of places that would ha that would have showcasing will charge indies and magfest maybe just because it's a nonprofit realized you know we should actually give the space away for free for indies so a 10 by 10 booth is for free uh tickets to magfest which aren't that that expensive relative i think there might be i don't know if it's hit a hundred dollars yet but 80 or 90 dollars for a four-day conference um two of those are given away for free to the indies um everything except for the the hotel and travel costs and uh i i can't really speak as much to it but i know that the existing department heads are looking at ways to alleviate some of those costs for indies who like really can't afford it to see if there's a way to do something um but there are some conferences and uh in the in the past that i think look at indies as more of just a moneymaker for the conference um and yeah i mean indies who go to a conference are going to be adding value to the conference because they'll have entertainment there for people to see and that's what I'm hoping a lot of indies see, that not only are they there to sh show their game and to market their game, but they are providing, providing value for the person throwing the conference. So they shouldn't, I feel they shouldn't be bending over, over backwards for whoever's running the conference. Um, the amount of leverage they have is really going to depend upon whether it's, you know, PAX East or if it's, you know, Bob and Joe's Rinky Dink conference you know out in the middle in the middle of nowhere which is a good show i've been to that one actually so oh, yeah yeah <laughs> um but we had like one of the ones that we had in the um in the past in 2009 there was a show called game x and this was um very well put together show in that um or i should say it was put together in that like it reached out to all the right people for the industry side so all the IGDA chapters on the East Coast got involved, New Jersey, New York, Baltimore, a um, few, few others. And from the industry standpoint, there was like a good set of conference tracks and all that. But this conference was held at a non-union convention center. They were trying to save money. And that kind of showed because it, if you looked up GameX 2009, you'll probably see the convention center itself. And it's definitely not like a major metropolis's you know, venue. Um, and also, they were able to get some big names there, like EA had a booth there and a few other few other bigger names. But the conference overall was pretty unsuccessful. Um, I don't know if it was just due to lack of marketing or lack of experience of the team who threw it, but um, they lost money on it. I know a lot of, they had um, some bands from MAGFest did a partnership to went there. And I think the bands did not get paid and the hotel rooms for the bands to not get paid. And there was a lot of other um, shadiness at the end because it wasn't able to go and make its full return. Um, and, I, that, and that seems to be like, you know, one of the warning signs I would tell people, indies, if they're gonna look to showcase at a convention like this is, you know, what is the track record? If it's a first year convention, um, you know, hopefully they're offering you free space. I think they were offering 10 by 10 booth space for $2,500.
And this was in 2009. So, you know, wow. since then, it's been like, what? I think there's been a 20% cost of living increase. So it would be over $3,000 today for a 10 by 10 booth space with, with nothing. You'd add another like $500 on top of that to get a power drop and, you know, pipe and drape and, and all that stuff. Um, for a convention, which I think only had a few thousand people come through it. And um, yeah, that's, it's, it's just tricky. You gotta, it's, Indies need to look, look for the warning signs. The fact that there was no following from before and they were asking so much for the indie, it was definitely not worth doing that convention. Um, might have been worth it for free. Or maybe for a, 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 a very no, a nominal amount. I mean, that's a, a good point. And, and it's one of the things that we do here because, well, I mean, one, because we always have to look at, at conferences in terms of is it worth our time to go to it? Is it worth us recommending, you know, our clients go to it? But pretty regularly for developers that are looking to go to any kind of conference, I would highly recommend go to the website, check it out, download the sponsor pack. Because most most of the, you know, events have a sponsor deck that you can download. Whether you're planning on sponsoring or not, it's a good idea because that's the deck that's going to tell you how many people are there, what the demographics are. All the key statistics are going to be in that sponsor deck because they're showing it to Microsoft and NVIDIA and Ad Colony and all these other places to get you know their stuff done. The It's a good, those are just a good way. And if they don't have it on there, then you can always just, there's, there's always things that says, hey, send us an email to request the sponsor deck and just email it, email them and ask for it because those are good ways. And if you do that all year long or you do that every every now and then, it'll give you an idea of what proper pricing is. Yep. No, that's, that's totally true. And it's like, it's really tricky to, to figure out like what what is fair, but I'm sure indies who have, done a few conventions, they'll start to get an idea of the range of how much stuff will cost. But for the indies who are just coming into it, um, you know, ask, I, I'd recommend ask other indies, you know, find out from the community, like what is a fair amount um, to be charged for a booth space um, and whether or not um, it's possible to negotiate. Because with some of the larger conventions, that may not be an option because they're they're pretty well set and there's high demand. But particularly if it's a smaller or no-name convention, uh, there's no reason why you, you couldn't try to negotiate um, if you feel that you might still get value out of doing it, but the price seems a little little exorbitant. Or, you know, just pass on it. You could always pass and wait till the next year and find out what the fallout was of the convention. With um, GameX, you know, after it happened, the well, the uh, the uh, industry summit portion of it was successful, um, and a lot of people wanted to do it again in twenty. Uh, this would be twenty ten. Uh, there was no GameX twenty ten. Like that thing didn't just didn't happen. So any indies who stayed away from there probably saved themselves money and time. Uh, the problem is, it's like this is not just an isolated incident because there's conventions like this happening all over, and I only know the ones that are happening around um, my area, around Baltimore and along the East Coast. And it seems like every five years or so, we have another convention coming up. Um, I don't know if, you, if I should mention the, the VGU one as well, but, um, I, I, well, let me, let me, uh, let me think how, how best to, to, fr to frame that one. 
the um so in, in 20 i guess 13 or maybe it was uh, early 2014 um some guys came out of nowhere and they approached uh magfest and they approached the baltimore igda and i, I was a chapter chair at the time about wanting to throw a convention in dc these guys they'd had a, a brick and mortar store it was like a Back when, like, gaming stores were pretty big, I think it's something GameStop's trying to do now, where you would, like, go in and you play video games on nice rigs that you wouldn't need at home. And um, and so they said they had a vision for this game convention. They had already signed a contract with the DC Convention Center, which is not rinky-dink, you know, by any, any stretch of the imagination. It's a very nice, posh, top-of-the-line convention center. And... At a, a coffee shop, they were pitching myself and one of the, um, we had an indie group at the time here uh, called Big, Baltimore Indie Gamers or Game Developers. And they're explaining what they wanted to do. And like, you know, right away, all the like warning signs started going off. And I'm like, wow, I've heard this before. And I'm telling them, and like, once they finished the pitch, I said, okay, this is great. But five years ago, you know, I was involved with something very similar and all the numbers that you're saying here are all the exact same numbers I heard back then, except their numbers were higher in terms of like budgeting for marketing. And your, high, your numbers are higher in what you think the expected attendance is going to be. And you know, they looked kind of surprised. And I was like, look, I can throw you guys th that, the deck that we had for Game X and tell you why it didn't work out. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. So they got the GameX deck. We explained how, um, despite the amount of marketing, that they needed to be one or two orders of a magnitude bigger for that show to um, have brought in the people that they wanted. And I think I asked the guys um, for VGU, I said, like, well, what is the minimum amount of attendance you're going to need to break even? Because we're going back and forth. They still want our involvement. And I'm like, I, I really don't want the Baltimore IGDA involved in this. But, you know, I definitely, if, like, I understand that this is grassroots, they're starting, they're doing it from the start. So if they can do this in a way that is not taking advantage of the indies and that we feel like is not going to be a total disaster, we want to give support. It's like, how many people, like, what would you need in terms of ticket sales in order for this to be successful? And they said 4,000. They're expecting 20 to 30,000. That's the number they threw out. But they said, we just need 4,000 sales. And I was like, all right, when we get closer to the date, um, show us your sales. If you have over 4,000, you know, we're all in. We'll do everything we can. I will speak it up to all the other local IGDA chapters that I have connections with personally. And um, they said, okay, yeah, that's great, great. And then when the time came around, I said, hey, can you guys show me the sales? Like, okay, we're over 4,000. It's like, okay, well, how can you show me? Like, no, no, we, 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 we can't, that's proprietary information or, you know, they, they would say something and it's like, okay, I think we, um, I think this is not the thing for us. Um, and we, and we were right. The, um, oh, that sounds a little, little obnoxious there. Oh, we were right. But, um, yeah, they, well, I mean, no, you don't, because you have to be able to, you, you've proven your thesis. I mean, so no, don't worry about it. Yeah. You are right. Yeah. Go with it. It was, um, I, I didn't go to the convention. Part of me almost wanted to buy a ticket just to see it, but I was like, nah. And um, Washington Post covered it, and there was a, um, they did a piece on there, and I think the title was something like, if you build it, they will come, right? Question mark. And 
I think they said they had 600 people there at the height of the convention at like one in the afternoon on Saturday. And they'd claim to have, I don't know how much they claimed, 7,000 or so people there. But like I, from the pictures that got put up online, I think maybe they had 1,000, 2,000 if you were generous. But, um, you know, they were trying to plan for 20 or 30,000. Um, and I, having done MAGFest, which brings in about 24,000 people, uh, to some degree, it's good they didn't, because if they'd had that number, they would have not been equipped in terms of staffing and to been to handle it from that situation. But, um, you know, they, it just looked like an empty, a very nicely carpeted, piped and draped, like, wasteland. There was, it was just nothing going on, just a lot of empty booths. And uh, I feel, what I feel most bad for it. Uh, I don't feel bad for the people who threw it because they, they were warned and, you know, they had, they had information. Um, but I feel bad for the indies who showcased there because they're showcasing to, you know, a few hundred people. I think they had to pay for their spots. I don't know if the spots were given to free. I think maybe at the end they might have just to, to get more traction there. But I think some indies actually had to pay for their spots down there. And, um, you know, I'm just like, I'm kind of holding my breath now because I'm waiting to see like when the next convention is going to come up, and um, and I know th I know they're going on because um, also you know friends with a lot of the guys up uh, Firaxis, which is my my day job now, um, in the marketing department, and you know they 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 got hit up by VGU and they they asked me they're like hey like are these claims they're making in this marketing email true and I'm like nope. That's not, true. that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. You know, it's a small industry. You know, you yeah. can't really BS your way around there because people talk, people know each other, and they're going to do due diligence. Yeah. If um, you know, if someone is claiming they've done all these done all these games, first thing I do, I go into MovieGames.com. I look at your credits history. It's like, did you really do that? Did you not? Um, and same thing when it comes to sponsorships. If someone's claiming it, and someone else knows another person involved. They're, they're, gonna, they're gonna check it out. So um, I know it's happening today. I, I can't because of Firaxis, uh what do you call it? Confidentiality agreements. I can't say like what those issues are with other conventions, but they're trying to like everyone wants to like bring in one of the lead game designers from one of the games or claim that a game designer is gonna be there. And after they've made that claim publicly, hit the marketing department to be like, oh, can we get can we get Jake? What? Can we get Ed? Can we get Sid? You know, whatever. And then marketing's like, no. And then the claim is still out there. Um, like with the even with the VGU one, I think the IGDA was originally a sponsorship. And after all the shady stuff went through, um, the national IGDA said, whoa, 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 we're not going to be involved either. Despite you know the the individual chapters not being involved. You look at the badges for VGU. IGDA is shown as one of the sponsors all over it. Because they want to try to add legitimacy to it. Um, See, so, yeah. I've seen just I, I've seen shows that are the opposite, where we had one, we had one. I wasn't involved in it. Let me go ahead and clear that. But <laughs> they had sponsors. I, I knew, I, I knew everybody that was that was involved, and so that's what. But they had sponsors who paid money, but then when they showed up. You know, their logos weren't on banners. They weren't, you know, included in emails. And it, it was it was the exact opposite. It was not like they were claiming that 
somebody was a sponsor. These were companies that had actually paid for sponsorships and then, you know, didn't get what they paid for in terms of that side of it. So, you know, it's, and I, and I can tell you too, you know, just from running the IGB events for the last year, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work just to run a digital event. There's no way in hell you would convince me to run an on-site event, even if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic. But <laughs> there are there are so many like you know things here and there that have to be done, and, and you know IGB is a it's a little different because one I, I started it just to help companies. I didn't really intend on you know having sponsors and all this other kind of good stuff. And it's literally just me. You know, I don't pull resources from the Powell Group to run this podcast, to run, you know, our events. Um, pretty sure I'm going, now that, you know, my wife has been laid off, I'm pretty sure she's going to get hired to um, do some stuff for IGB, but um, it, it's, it's she's not going to get paid much. The, <laughs> But it, I mean, it is a whole lot of work. And so I get it, you know, when something slipped through the cracks, but at the end of the day too, I mean, this is a very, running an event is a very big thing. I mean, it, it's your reputation. And, and like you said, there, this is a small industry. We can see through bullshit really, really quickly. And if it looks like bullshit, but we're not sure, it don't take us long to call somebody and find out. Right. That's that's the the reality of all of this stuff. And I think, you know, I go back to that article the other day where the developer said they were going to nine different conferences. And part of me just is it, it, like, how are you justifying that cost as an indie dev? And, and we broke it down a little bit on one of the shows recently, you know, it's like they had four international flights, one halfway around the world flight, uh, jump over from mainland Europe to the UK, and then like three events in the EU. I, I can't imagine how many copies they would need to sell of that game to cover that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's just absolutely crazy. And I think some of these events will come in and prey on developers like that because they're like, hey, look, we're going to run an event and you're going to get a lot of eyeballs. The reality is if you're not getting the right eyeballs, it, it doesn't matter. You know, it, it's not just about having, you know, whether or not you had 5,000 or 40,000 people come through. How many of that 5,000 or 4,000 were actually a good target for your game. Oh, yeah. That's a really good point. And one of the indies I, I talked to, um, he's a maker of this really good uh, 2D game called uh, Dwell. I think it's early access right now, so I don't know if people can get, get it or not. Um, but he would show it off at Minecon because it had a lot of concepts that um, Minecraft players would like. And um, he just had to go and change how he would he would pitch the game because it was mostly families there and little kids and um you know whether or not you're showing there or like there's a showcase in baltimore every year there's artscape which is a big art festival with might even be six figures for the number of people who would come in i have no idea what we're going to be doing this year with 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 covid but there's the gamescape section of that and 
you know, indies can apply to showcase there, and I think they can showcase for free, which is great, but the audience that's going to be there is going to be a family audience, people coming for an arts festival. So even though there might be thousands of people who'd be going through any of the days when showcasing, you know, if you're making a horror game or you know a game with an adult content or something that's not going to be family friendly it probably wouldn't make any sense to go and sign up for a, an artscape for a gamescape like convention because you won't you no one's going to buy your game they might look at it and be like oh okay that's great or look at it and be like oh man co cover your eyes billy don't look at what's on the screen there and you know um it's a place to you know find find the audience and some of these uh, one of the other guys I've talked to said, like, a key thing is to look at, um, if you're going to do the smaller conventions, yeah, look for ones which might be for your target audience. So if there's a convention and it was all, you know, RPG-based and was really big into, like, JRPGs and whatnot, and you have an RPG, that could be a convention to go to, even if it's only going to be two or 3,000 people there. Yes because you'll get such good conversion on it. It'll be worth your time. That's a good, no, so that, that's definitely a, a good point. All, just because it's a convention doesn't mean it's equal. And even with some of the bigger conventions, I mean, you look at what like all the big dogs are doing, EA, Take-Two, Ubisoft and all, they're not hitting every convention. Um, you know, it's like, it's strategic because it doesn't, it may not make sense to go and showcase a game at every different one. So it may not be bad to do one bigger convention uh, for an indie, at least for the networking, at the very least, just to meet people. Um, and that's like the worst thing about this pandemic is not meeting people in person. See, that's but another one of those things, though. I mean, one of the constant pieces of feedback, even before we hit pandemic phase, when we were doing the events last year, was I would get developers go, well, these digital events aren't going to work because you miss out on that opportunity to randomly run into people. And I went, you just answered your own problem right there. You're basing a decision on whether or not to spend $200 or $10,000 on whether or not you will randomly run into somebody. Yeah. And, and, you know, there is so much networking that you can do now no, you're not. So let me clarify. You are never going to replace the person-to-person, -person, human contact, hanging out in the bar aspect of, of going to a conference. But if you're looking at it to go network, you need to have a really good idea of who you might potentially be networking with. And how big is it? It's like, I, I don't go to you know, these big parties at, at conventions anymore because one, I'm old. And two, it's it's like they aren't a good place to network anyway because the music is so damn loud. You can't yeah. hear yourself think. And by the time a lot of them kick off, everybody's been drinking for five hours. So they're half drunk, you know, or fully drunk. And it, it, it's one of those that you just have to be really aware, really cognizant of who's going to be there, both from a consumer side and from a, you know, exhibitor, other attendee side, um, because you don't base your decisions on whether or not you might randomly run into somebody at a networking event. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of FOMO goes around and that's what may drive. Yeah, it does. 
hit hit the events. Um, it, it's funny you said about like you know the networking and the parties. I remember one of the last GDCs that I've been to because um, you know you hit conventions less in general, just just having a kid. But uh, yes, you do. <laughs> was um I mean I'm trying to I don't even remember who it was for. I don't know if it was a if it was Stardock or um, Eve Eve Online, but it was it was some some event. Had went the previous year. It was it was a good event, and uh, the line was crazy long. And just waiting in line and looking forward to getting to the party, and I just strike up a conversation with the person behind me, and we were having just such a good conversation. And the line was taking so long. We're like, hey, let's go around the corner to a bar and just get a beer and chat. Yes. And it was so much more worthwhile than getting in to the place with. I mean, I love I love the techno, love the beats, but you know, it was much more worthwhile to just like sit down in a bar drink a bit, chat with the guy. Um, and it's those type of opportunities which are going to be most worthwhile um, because you, you remember them, you know what you're talking about, you can hear each other. Um, the, the way I got my job at Firaxis was actually um, from just walking by someone else at a convention that I'd already had known, um, but it wasn't, um, wasn't at a party. It wasn't trying to go to something bigger. Um, one thing I'd left out on my story, and this maybe will give hope for anyone who's trying to get, uh, maybe who's trying to go to a bigger studio or even maybe a smaller indie studio but doesn't get in. I'd applied to Fraxis three times in my career before I actually got into it. Uh, the first time was when I first got out of college and had no experience, and they rightfully just rejected me. And the second time was, I don't know, a few years later. Um, but the third time, wasn't, I wasn't even planning on it, but I went to the GDC and found another friend through some random non-gaming group, like Ultimate Frisbee or whatnot, and he's like, hey, you should apply. Uh, oh, you know Flash and C++. You should apply. And I was like, I, I don't know. What, what's the game? He's like, what's well, an unannounced title? It's like, okay. And it ended up being XCOM Enemy Unknown. And, um, but it was um, persistence pays off, too. So you know, if there's a studio, bigger studio, whether it be 100 people or 10 people that you want to get into and you don't get into it, um, I would say for a general advice to indies, I say it's like, don't be disheartened. Just, you know, keep working on your chops or finding your skills and, you know, try again in a few years. It might, it just, the timing just might not exist. Um, don't give up hope. Because I've also seen indies from my, like, you know, the studio that I've had who have been trying to get into the industry and they've gotten to the point where they've suffered so much rejection, they just, few years, they've left games altogether. They don't want to do anything AAA. They don't want to do anything indie. They've got a job. You it know, wears on you. I mean, yeah. it really does. I mean, part of the reason I have a consulting firm now is because 10 years ago, I was applying for jobs and I got frustrated doing that. And I'm like, screw it. I'm going to do do it on my own, which is, I guess it was like six or eight months ago. I saw some guy on LinkedIn. He had this long post about how they recruited this person and you know, they interviewed him and then they offered him the job. And then like, you know, out of the blue, he just said no. Hmm. And that was it. And, and he left it. And he was like, it's just, we spent so much time and it was so rude for him just to say no. And I'm like... How many of those other people that you interviewed did you send a response with a with a reason behind it? I can guarantee you it's probably less than two. Right. You know, right. Because you you just do it. You go out and you apply for these jobs. You never get any feedback on 
you know, why you didn't get picked or, and, and they, I understand a lot of it is they have to be careful they, of what they say in case it gets construed as ageism or sexism or, or anything along those lines. But it doesn't hurt to give people feedback. You know, I deal with it every day. People send us games and I'm like, look, it's not a good fit for us because blah, blah, blah. You know, this is it. But, you know, going out and doing that job search is so mind-numbing that, yeah, I can totally see how people just go, you know what, the hell with this industry. I'll go do something else. Oh, yeah, no, no most definite. And it's like we I try to do that as well whenever we got resumes come through when people we want to get to the next level. If we're not interested, you know, we'll give a to the direct to our executive director, give a quick blurb, which might be like, no, then executive summary as to why, and then a big detailed blob that they can pick and choose from and what they want to go and send back through. Um, so that there's at least some feedback. Um, and same thing going back to like the whole topic of showcases, like we find that that's been very important too, even inside of like the Magfest indie showcase, is that we try to get. We've been trying to get better at having the judges' feedback come back. Um, it just can be particularly hard when some of the judges, which are volunteers, will be brutally honest, and it's you know they're they're telling someone their ba their baby is ugly, and <laughs> um, and so it's like we want to like we That's want it to mean. be constructive, but it may not be some of the feedback may not be the most. Th it's not that it's wrong, but it's not the most constructive way of of, fr of framing it. That's what um, Jay so said his job about? actually is, is telling people their babies are ugly. <laughs> that's what Jay's job. That's what, that's what he's been saying for, for months and months and months. My job is telling people their babies ugly. That's great stuff. It is. You have to tell them a little bit about why their baby's ugly. But, yeah, you, you – it's uh, and it's funny because I've been on both sides of that. A good friend of mine, when we used to do uh, evaluations way back in the day, he, I mean, as brutally honest as I am, he was even worse. And, and I would, he, I would bring the evaluation back to him and go, "All right, dude, I cannot go back and tell the developer this. You need to put it in some way, shape, or form that's not nearly as mean, and we'll go, and we can go back." at that point, but it's a fine line. You want to give feedback, but at the same time, you don't want to completely destroy hopes and dreams. Yeah, that is so true. And it's like, you know, it, it is an art and it gets better with practice, but sometimes it's hard when you put onto the spot. Um, there's some showcases that we have from local institutions around here, such as, um, Johns Hopkins, University of Baltimore, and UMBC, um, they all have video game programs or sub-programs in there. And um, I spoke, uh, I think it was a few days before Baltimore went on to lockdown at um, actually MICA, the um, Maryland Institute College of the Arts. And after speaking, they had me look at all the senior um, Keystone projects they were working on. And like the ones that were great, it's like, oh, this is great. This is fantastic. And the ones that you're like, oh man, it's like, um, there's, there's bad in that <laughs> it wasn't executed well. And then there's also bad where you can tell the students just did not put any time into it at all. And you want, I, I feel like I should try to be nice on both of them. The ones that didn't put the time in it, I'll be a little bit harsher on them because they've like, clearly they've spent half the time 
as you know anyone else but the ones where it's like they tried really hard but maybe they don't have someone taking a producer type role or they just the game idea is just not fun or they just don't have the technical chops for what they they're trying to do that is much harder because you want to you want to be critical in that they can know what the problems are but yeah you don't want to be so harsh that they're like well f games i can't i can't do any better and then get out of there you know it's is a certain level of of need for that though i mean there i had this conversation with a with a conference organizer several years ago and we had just done mentor sessions and and we with with you know those of us who have been doing this for far too long signed up and we said hey look we'll, we'll mentor people we'll help people and we had finished that and we went back and we were at the hotel bar and you know the conference organizer was, was really energized and she's like oh sake so you know obviously the the conference itself and the showcase you know helps the top 20 percent of developers and the mentoring is going to help you know the next 30 percent that aren't quite ready to go to the top of you know to, to present and to be out here doing this officially she's like what do we do for the rest of them and i'm like you can't help everybody some people just need to realize that either the industry isn't for them or they need to be doing something else in the industry you know it's it, it's you don't there's so many opportunities in games now that you don't necessarily have to come in you know with with a single focus and, and try to do just that you know one of the reasons that i do what i do now is because i started at a really small company and i saw every aspect of running a small business everything from marketing to accounting to sales acquisitions literally i mean there were three of us we literally saw everything and it, it's that's part of it is it's you have to find not only what you enjoy but what you're good at and it's like me i'm never going to be an artist in this industry hmm. hell i'm never going to be a programmer at this point <laughs> i love that stuff you know i programmed for years up until i got you know to college but it you know that's not my role anymore you know that's not what i enjoy it's not what i'm good at and so yeah i mean you don't want to go out there and crush everybody's dreams but at the same time people need a good understanding of what their opportunity is yeah that's true and that's the i mean there is so many positions particularly on the indie side that are not filled because i think a lot of people feel they need to fill one of these like creative positions but there's so many positions outside of the creative game making which are needed for an indie game to be successful um you know whether it be accounting lawyers producing uh, so many so many things and this is like what usually seems to separate indies who can make the uh the break from doing it just part-time hobby and those who are able to make a living doing indie games is that either people are able to wear two hats and they're very good at one of these other um, other non-creative tasks, or they have someone that they've somehow found, it's still very hard to find these people, who can come in and do a lot of all the business stuff so that um, anyone who's on the creative side doesn't have to be bogged down with it. Because trying to do it, trying to do it all is, um, 
is hard. And some, some and that's the reason I have a job. <laughs> it, 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 it is. And, and so I want to talk for a second about, you know, how you approach, because you said you just went back and got your MBA. And a lot of that is because you wanted to learn how to do the business side of this industry better. With the work that you've been doing with, with Bagfest, what are the things that you constantly try to do? And yes, I am fishing for you know advice for our own event. What are the things that you've learned that you have to do, that you try to do, and the little check boxes that you tick that to make sure you're gonna have a good event and you don't end up like one of these others that have so many red flags? It's like, what what are you making sure that you're hitting and what are the, I mean, because those are the things that people are going to need to look for in upcoming events. Right. No, most definitely. I mean, it's, it's tricky using MAGFest as a model. I mean, I can speak to the model, but I'll also say with a, a caveat that it's more of the exception than the rule. And I think one of the reasons is it's a nonprofit um, foremost. So there's certain, um, you know, things that have to be adhered to in order to maintain the, the nonprofit status. And even that was shaky for a while, but um, thanks to some partnerships with institutions like uh, the Smithsonian, who has an event, um, and a few other places that helped add legitimacy. Because you know, you go to the IRS and you're applying for the 501c3, and maybe 10 or 12 of these events have happened, but the IRS sees, oh, video games, nonprofit, and you've got people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, maybe working there. I don't know. And they're just video games. No, they're clearly a profit profit driver. It's like, well, no, this is about not only today's video games, but also historic preservation, the music around it. Um, and Magfest would have probably not have gotten its nonprofit status if it wasn't for a really good accountant here in Baltimore and him able to go and frame it together with uh, how. Uh, some of the work with institutions like the Smithsonian happened. Um, but that also says that because it's nonprofit, MAGFest tries to stay away from taking corporate sponsorships. It's not that MAGFest isn't into corporate sponsorships, but it feels like it must be an equitable trade. And um, the for the most part, it, it hasn't worked out that way. So um, there aren't many corporate sponsors. And I don't see how most other conventions could be pulled off without it. Um, the only reason why MAGFest was able to get to this point is really long and slow organic growth. So, you know, while there's 24,000 people now, I think there's only a few hundred people at the very first convention, and it was made to be a small convention. And it didn't move from the Virginia Mark Center in Crystal City uh, to the Gaylord down in the DC until the um, we, we hit the cap. Like you couldn't fit any more people and tickets sold out you know, way too early and we realized we need more space. <laughs> and we thought, okay, at the Gaylord, they have room for about 20 or so, 20 or so thousand people. We should be good for five or so years. And what ended up happening, I think by the second year, we already hit cap. We sold out every hotel and the whole National Harbor around the Gaylord. And, um, but there's no other convention centers that, that would work out. Uh, 
So for anyone anyone listening to this who wants to throw an in-person convention, now is not a great time. Maybe <laughs> be here later. Um, one of the things MAGFest did was went to these hotels and said, what week is your absolute worst week of sales? You know, because oh, they wanted to they realize that these hotels, these convention centers, they need to they need to fill them. And that's when MAGFest gets planned. It's basically during the worst week. And now that it's got to the point where it can fill up the entire place, there's a little bit of leverage MAGFest has to work with uh, the Gaylord and other other entities to go and figure out when to have it. Um, trying to think like any anything that would be useful for for online conventions. Uh, trusting people's good good corporate governance is key too. Um, well, MAGFest has been around for a while. Definitely, you bring volunteers in. Some people think one thing. Other people think something else. And then eventually you get strong personalities and they may clash. So if you're um, – one thing I, I should have mentioned earlier, if indies are about to go into a convention and they hear a lot of drama around it from the past that isn't resolved in a civil way, that should be a red flag to avoid that convention. Um, MAGFest had some, I won't say drama, but had some issues in the past, but I think the board and the executive directors and whoever was in charge took a adult and responsible way of handling whatever that, that drama would be. And that should, that's a sign of like a, a healthy convention. Um, so going back to your sponsor question, I mean, or, or statement, it is interesting because I think you get in a situation where, you know, and this is part of the reason a lot of these real life events are in so much trouble right now. They create this feeding frenzy of, okay, we have sponsors. And so now we have to have bigger space or make things nicer in order to appease them. But then when they do, the cost of it goes up and then they need more sponsors. We've run five, four, four IGB events so far. There's only been a couple of those that, you know, have honest, that had honest to God paying sponsors. And, you know, we've got other companies that we work with where it's, it's a trade-off, you know, help us with this. We'll help you with that. And, you know, we'll make a sponsor. It's not necessarily, sponsors aren't necessarily always paid, but and I'll call out of this, you know, when Pocket Gamer announced their digital, their first digital conference a few months ago, it just set me off to no end because they said, well, we have to have these pricing mechanisms, you know, we're not, we can't give them away for free and we have to do tickets this way to cover expenses. This is, there are next to no expenses for running a digital event. I mean, don't let anyone, you know, fool you on that. You have server costs. We've got costs that have to go into the time that we put into it. But, you know, the reason that we charge money for tickets is because when we gave them away for free, we had a bunch of people sign up and not do anything. And that just makes everything look bad, which leads to people going online and going, hey, I bought tickets to this thing, but nobody was actually there. For companies to come in and say, you know, we have to have tickets priced this way, 
because we have, you know, they're compensate. We have to compensate for something. You don't. Okay. Digital events, they're not free, but you're not paying for, you know, conference space. You're not paying for catering. You're not hiring, you know, hundreds of people on staff, even as some of them are volunteers. There are 90% of the costs that go along with having a physical conference don't exist when you're doing digital. And don't try to tell me they do because I've been running these damn things for, for you know, a year. And so it was one of those that when they announced that, it just, it really pissed me off to like no end. It's like, okay, that's just simply not true. So what happens is all of a sudden, they have all of these sponsors and you know, they're a special case because they've, you know, had relationships with people for years, you know, with the physical events. And I also know it's important to them because all of these conferences, the, the traditional conferences anyway, are in serious trouble right now because they run, you don't, you just don't make a lot of money. You don't profit. Nobody gets rich running these conferences. You know, they're expensive to put on, and so they're expensive, you know, the, the money isn't just there. They're running on thin margins, that's what I'm trying to say. Right. And so many of them are in trouble. You know, you look at something like Pocket Gamer, they run, what, five, six, com six conferences a year hmm. around the world? And now, they're done. There are none. So it's like they had their first one the other week and they've already announced their next one is going to be like in two or three months. And I can tell you from experience, summertime is a shit time to run, you know, these conferences. It may be different this year because the problem you run into with a summer event on the digital side is that there are so many other events going on. Well, that's still the same. I mean, we're up to... We've got a, a a a free link that you can go to and see all the upcoming events. And we're like, there's like 20 some events going on before the end of August. So you still have that, but you also have, you have to keep in mind, Europe tunes out July and August. They're not there. They're on holiday. Now, this is going to be different this year because ain't nobody going on holiday. But it's a tough time to do it. But we're seeing these traditional conferences in, in many ways trying to overcompensate. And so the problem, you know, that we've seen, this isn't speculation, is you have a digital event, you go out and you have all these sponsors because one, you're used to having sponsors and two, you know, you got a big overhead that you're trying to cover, you know, to, to make your conference work. Well, then you've got obligations to all those conferences. And it's one thing when you say, okay, a, a gold level sponsor is going to have their logo on the signage and you know they'll be printed on the program, that's passive sponsorship. You're not badgering anybody with that. It's like, yeah, you walk through and everything's got you know, an NVIDIA logo on it or a Sony logo on it, but you're not standing there poking people going, hey, Sony sponsors this, Sony sponsors this. When you go to digital, you don't have all that. You, you don't have, you know, a lot of signage. You, you're, you have a finite amount of space that you can put sponsors. You know, we cap our sponsors at three sponsors now. That's it. We, we don't have any more. Because as we've seen now, 
these shows that have a shitload of sponsors start sending a shitload of emails. And it's, it's, it's annoying and it drives your customers off. You know, I constantly say our newsletter from the Powell Group and from Indie Game Business is as large as it is and does get the click-throughs and things because we don't have a lot of sponsorship shit in it. We're not going to people and saying, hey, you know, buy this, buy this, buy this, buy this, because, you know, we send that newsletter out to keep indies updated on on this show and on th- news that they need to be aware of. But you you get into a very vicious cycle when you start getting bigger and bigger and bigger and you have more and more sponsors, and then you have obligations to those sponsors, so you gotta keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I think, you know, next year, I don't think we're gonna have any conferences the rest of this year. I'll go ahead and, and say that. Gamescom got canceled yesterday, because Germany said no large gatherings until at least the end of August. Wow. So Gamescom's gone. That knocks out DevCom. Hmm. The probability of GDC pulling off their August event is you know five percent ten percent maybe then you've got the situation of you know if san francisco or the state of california allows them to do it how many people are actually going to want to go i don't right you know i'm not going to be cool getting on an airplane in august it's i don't think we're going to see a lot the rest of this year in terms of, of physical conferences and the companies that are going digital, it's not a matter of just going, hey, look, we're going to run some, you know, videos on on Twitch or Skype or Zoom or Teams or, or whatever. It's it, it's not that easy, you know. Running digital events is different than running a physical event, and it's just. Part of, part of my rant, you know, the whole sponsor thing versus how big your show is got, got me started on that. But, you know, a lot of these companies that are just like, okay, we're just going to run a, a, a digital event. Uh, shit's not easy. That's not the same. I mean, so let me toss this back to you then, Troster. If as a, so you get to look at this from a lot of different angles. You've been an event organizer. You work at a, a major AAA studio and you also, you know, have indie dev experience what are you looking for when you look at some of these digital events that are coming up oh wow that's a really good question because it's you know it's if i'm looking at a digital event i'm probably looking at mostly more from from the indie standpoint i know um on the the professional triple a we have people experts who are handling that aspect and uh, you know, one day I hope to still put out some like small form games in the indie side. So, you know, the I'd be hoping to go and meet other indies, people who'd be either interested in collaborating, uh, for the marketing standpoint, actually testing. And I don't know if many if this is an aspect that's been in any of the digital convention, any of the digital meetups yet. But you know, when a game's about to go out, one thing that's useful is like the tactful way of someone saying the baby is ugly. And a lot of the big studios will rent a place. You have the one-way glass, get people play it, and um, either marketing or sometimes even the game designers will one-way glass and get the feedback from the players playing the game. Uh, and this will be done by the studio or the publisher or a little bit of both. 
And indies don't have that option so much. They only have the option of presenting the game at these conventions and then getting the feedback from the players, but then having to take that feedback to be useful, they need to apply the appropriate filters. If it's a little kid, uh, it's from their perspective. You might get an unfiltered one, but if you're at a convention and <laughs> you know, you're the game developer itself, you present it yourself as a game designer and someone's played their game, they'll be like, oh yeah, this was really great. And you gotta read between the lines because if they say it's really great, you're like, oh, well, do you wanna try this other level I made in this game? And they're like, oh no, I'm good, I'm good. You have to think, okay, maybe, you know, you're just, you know, they're, they're patting you on the back, but, like, they really don't think it's so good. Um, by having an intermediary, a third party, who is not the actual game developer present the game and actually say, like, this is not, I did not make this game. I'm doing this on behalf of the game designer. designer I want to get feedback. Um, that can be invaluable for, for indies. And there's probably opportunities to do that at some of these online um, conventions but uh again yeah not quite you know it's it's new it's new territory uh, to me it's new to territory i know to you this is old hat you guys have been doing this you know for for a while um and i'm, I'm kind of curious to see like what what can be done to provide you know value for for indies um through a service like that um maybe even playing the games i don't know if that's possible but um even if it's just looking at trailers or whatnot and getting some feedback some honest feedback that an indie can use would, would definitely be helpful to them. So, so there's two things. One, you know, if you want, for, for those of you out there listening, and if you want concrete empirical evidence of what Chaucer's talking about when it turns to what somebody is going to say to you as the developer versus what somebody is going to say to someone who's not the developer. There's a show on Netflix that I discovered because the school nurse recommended the kids watch it. It's, it's a kid's show. It's a kid's science show called Brain Games. And there is an episode where they take like four kids and they watch a video of a woman singing. And one group is told, you know, watch this video, write down your thoughts. It's, it's just, it's anonymous. Nobody's gonna know who wrote it. We want your honest feedback on this. And the other group is told, you know, watch the video and then we're, you know, the artist is gonna come in and we're gonna share, she wants your honest feedback and, and we're gonna share it with her you know, right here. And I mean, obviously it's two groups of kids, two different groups of kids, but they have a camera filming the whole time. And the, the thoughts of all the kids in both groups is the same. Hmm. The woman can't sing. She's not, it's not that great. But the feedback to when they said, you know, this is the anonymous one is, is, is blunt, brutal. You know, you're not that good. It wasn't impressed, blah, blah. And the other group was, oh, well, you know, yeah, I kind of liked it. It was, obvious. it was completely different. Then they take it a step further. And after, you know, they've written down what they thought, the, kid, the kids that were told it was going to be anonymous, they have, them written, have it written down. And they, they said, the guy goes, okay, let's just read it, you know, here between us. And before they start doing it, they're like, oh, wait, hold on, she's here. And they bring her in live, and it's a woman who actually, you know, she does really, she can really sing. But the look on the kids' faces, it's just like, oh, shit. We just, 
said, I'll, now we're going to say to her face that, you know, and they start <laughs> bullshitting their, their answers. It's like, because you know what they wrote. And then they're like, oh, well, I said, that's not what they said. You are always going to get that. So there's the, the empirical evidence. It's called Brain Games. It's on Netflix. It's actually, even for grownups, it's fairly entertaining. That is one of the things that was brought up in that article on games industry biz and that I responded to. And we talked a little bit about it with Justin last Friday. Getting that feedback from the show floor, from players coming up and playing the game while you're there is somewhat valuable. I, you know, obviously I have a a more cynical side of it and I look at things in terms of, you know, it's just like, yeah, okay, so what, you know, the there's 20,000 people coming to it. How many of those are actually going to be interested in your game versus a show that you can go to that has 4,000 people, but you know, a thousand people are like really, really rabid about this stuff. You don't, when you're at a physical event, you don't know who's coming through. Is this person standing in line to play your game because they saw it streaming or they saw it, uh, you know, the, the video that, that you have at the front of the booth and they think they're interested in it? Are they standing there in line because the line to play, you know, Zelda was like wrapped around the building and they need something to do? Are they standing in line to play your game because their friend is standing in line to play the game? You get feedback, how valuable that feedback is, is hard to say. You know, unless you specifically start tuning, you know, you have somebody standing there with them. And if they're playing your game, you're asking them questions like, so what else do you play? You know, and, and if you've got a game that's, you know, a 4X game like Civ, you know, and they're like, well, I really love action RPGs and, and visual novels. Well, your feedback on my 4X strategy game isn't nearly as valuable as, you know, the guy next to you that, you know, plays all these games and, and, and they really love, you know, the genre and all this other stuff. You, you have to know who's going to be there. You know, the other aspect of it is, you know, how many people are going to be coming through? You know, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's hard to quantify. I don't put nearly as much, you know, credence into, well, we get a lot of people coming through because those people are, you know, inherently defined by who had a ticket, who had the money to buy a ticket and the time to go. And where are you? The feedback you get on a game in Boston is going to be different than feedback that you get on a game in Germany or in Japan or in South America. The reality, the, the way I recommended people, you know, indie devs go and do this is one, look at how much money you were going to spend to go to that show in the first place. If you go on Keymailer or Wooveit or any of these, uh, you know, sites that actually let you sort streamers and influencers, go and instead of relying, getting your feedback, relying on who happens to be walking through the conference that day, you can actually target the influencers that play your style of game. And if you're looking for feedback and not just, you know, marketing eyeballs, because it's two different things, there are 
hundreds of streamers. You know, we see them, I see them in every Discord that I'm in, including our own, who, you know, they don't have thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of followers, and they're looking for new stuff to do and, and new games to play. And that was, that's where I recommend you get a much more focused audience because you're right. How much money have we spent as game companies bringing people in for that focus testing where you have to have a room and you have to have a two-way glass and you have to make sure everybody's there and you're taking the right notes. Now we have streamers. And a lot of these streamers are really passionate about genres and types of games. And you can go to them and say, hey, look, will you play mine? Because a streamer is going to tell you what they think. It's their job. It's, that's what they do. If your socks, they're going to say, I don't like this because, you know, the, what, <laughs> what are those things called? The build, tre build trees. Your build trees aren't set up right. You know, blah, blah, blah. I just think that that's a much more scientific way of, of doing this than, geez, you know, there's 10,000 people at this event and 347 of them came through. But how do I know that their feedback is accurate or good? Exactly. It's, you know, getting that signal from the noise in there and, you know, and just whatever can be employed at, at the events itself. Um, you know, I mean, that's, there's all of these other, other little things we didn't really, really touch on, but are also keys. Like, is there, will press be at the event? Is there mailing lists for the event? Can you set up your own mailing list? Someone comes there, you know, email lists. Um, and also you make a good point too, that there's these lists out there. Now you can find streamers. There's a Wikipedia page of notable game conventions, which is great, and make sure it's notable because there are, I wouldn't be surprised if up until this year there were thousands, but at the very least there were hundreds of different sized game conventions, and only about, you know, probably a few, a handful, a few dozen are of notable event, and you've got, you know, maybe a dozen or so, which are like the, the big ones out there, like the Gamescom packs. E3 and whatnot. And you know, using online resources can tell whether or not someone's going to be able to offer you something that's worthwhile or whether or not, like if you've never heard of them, it's like, well, you talk a big game, but you know, where's your information out there? Um, so yeah, so just like going to streamers for a target audience, um, you know, use, use the internet for, for getting the information, for, putting, uh, for deciding where, where you're going to go. Oh, wait, we have a question. Oh, my God, that's like a question for me. Uh, Andy, when was the last time we had a question for me on this show? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, how important are you? Here we go. Not, not very. <laughs> so how much money and how many people should you have to start an online convention? It seems like too much for one person. <laughs> it is. Um, plus, friends make it more fun. It, so... The money that you're going to need is going to depend on what you want to do. You're going to have to have money for marketing because I will go ahead and tell you for the four events that we've done for IGB, I spend a good amount of a month, you know, not in my daytime, but in my nighttime, you know, sitting on the couch going one-on-one -on -one with publishers and developers and explaining why this show is effective. 
and you know we've done it we had a huge show with you know hundreds of people's last time we had over 1100 meetings happen at our last event and i still have to get on and go look this is who comes this is why it's important this is why it's good for you are the meetings one-on-one or what are well i know yeah. you said that they're how what are, is it just people or the group meetings or how does mm-hmm. that no no no, no, no. we so we partnered with meet to match day one and the reason we did that is because i sincerely believe they have the best solution when it comes to online business matchmaking so you go in and um all right, so I'm going to put on your 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 Foraxis hat, your your BD at Foraxis now. Uh, I I need a switch code, by the way. Anyway, the um, you go in and you say, okay, I'm looking for. I have this, you know, Civ Seven, and we're not owned by TK. We're just 2K. We're just going to pretend that that's not real, and we need to go find a publisher. You can literally go in and say, I need to find a company that is publishing games on PC and it will sort the list for you. And it will say, here's, you know, 70 companies that are gonna be here. Because when you fill out your profile, you say what you do and you say what you're looking for. So here's 70 companies that are looking for PC games to publish or that publish PC games that you can talk to. And then you send an inv- you send a meeting request to them and you're like, hey, I'm Tronster, I have this new upcoming 4X strategy game. Uh, the stuff that we've done in the past is like really good and we think this one's gonna be really good too. We need a publisher, do you wanna meet? And so you don't have to know anybody. It's not like it used to be when you would go to these shows and you're like, oh my God, I got to find the person at 2K to talk to. I have no idea who the person at 2K to talk to is. It's right there. You know, it's like you send an email to that person. Well, it's not an email. It's in the system. And that person then gets your request and says, oh yeah, this looks interesting. And this is something we might want to publish and they accept it. And it goes on your calendar. You know, because you pick the time and it only that you pick times that work for both of you. If you already have another meeting out there, it's not going to double book you, which as someone who has run, you know, managed shows for developers for 20 some years, I can tell you is damn near invaluable. But, you know, it cuts the bullshit and the guesswork out of it because you get to see exactly who the companies are that are looking for your product. You send them a message. And then they can say, no, it's not right for us right now, or I'm not interested at all, or, hey, let's talk later, you know, maybe off outside of the show. And once the meeting is set, when it's time for your meeting, you know, if you've used Meet to Match at at any other conference, you know it says, okay, Jay, you have a four o'clock meeting with Indy and you need to be at booth 421. Well, this says, Jay, you have a four o'clock meeting with Indy and click this link and you get on a video call. And then you go directly into a one-on-one call. It's not, you know, group calls. You're not automatically chucked into some random pool of people to possibly meet with. It is absolutely very direct. You can do your own research, find out exactly who you need to meet with, send them a message and boom, you're either gonna meet them or you're not. Nice. Where, where was I before we got to that point? Oh, oh, on the question. So it is a lot. It is uh, a lot for one person. There are a wide variety of these shows out there right now. 
if you go to, I posted the link earlier to the list that we have of all the upcoming digital conferences that we know of. Um, and if you are running a digital conference or you know of one that is not on that list, there's even a handy dandy little link at the bottom of that list that says here, click here and, and send me an email and I'll get it on there. Um, so yeah, it is a lot for one person. <laughs> I can testify to that. Um, but it depends on, it's like, yeah, if you use something like Meet to Match, there is a service fee that goes along with that. You know, that's why I said it's not completely, running an online conference isn't completely free. You know, you're either going to need a meeting system, which you have to pay for, you're gonna to need to develop your own, which I would not recommend, or even if you're doing, you know, some of these ones that we see now are, are indie pitch or showcase things. And so you'll need a Zoom account, you'll need, you know, whatever you wanna use, some sort of video software to be able to, you know, show these games and play these games live. And you're gonna need somebody behind the scenes making sure it's working. You know, and, and that's the that's the catch when it comes to the ones that are just basically streaming games all day. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. And it's, and it's, it's extremely valuable because yes, indie teams are missing out on exposure and this gives them exposure, but you gotta have somebody sitting behind the scenes going, it's it, it, uh, producers, like literally what indie does for, for us, you know, switch to this, make sure this person is lined up to do their next presentation. Is their audio working right? It's, it's not like you can just put it up there and say, okay, everybody hand out your Skype address and, and, and do a bunch of talks. There are is stuff that goes into it. How much money you need to start one just literally comes down to what you want to do. If you want to send me an email or hit me up in the Discord, I'll go into as much detail on this you know, as you want because we help studios do this. Um, and, and so, yeah, it, it comes down to what you need. The thing I would keep in mind is you need, just like your game, there are so many of these digital events that are popping up now, you need to make sure that yours has an actual, you know, unique selling point. You know, why is somebody going to go to my indie game business event versus going to, you know, a pocket gamer event or, you know, another event? One, we've been doing these longer than anybody has, and two, I will absolutely sit down and go one-on-one -on -one and show you that our meeting system is better than any of, the, any of the other ones out there. And that's it. Make sure you've got something unique to do and meet about and make sure you know how to do it right. That's the bottom line. Thank you. Um, so <laughs> and thank you. And well, scene. <laughs> we're way over now and we haven't even got to Andy's rant yet. Um, That's okay. I can save my rant where I'm maybe when I'll be a little bit less uh, emotional about it. <laughs> Tron, I'm totally fine with that. You want to add? Dude, I really appreciate you coming on. This is, oh, yeah. this is sure. awesome. No, I mean, I guess just re, uh, I would just reiterate um, for any indies doing a showcase, uh, don't get into FOMO, nor the FOMO, and look at the opportunity cost and your time is worth something. So just factor that in when you're picking, whether you're doing this online or in person. And remember the bar is much lower once you're online, it's much easier to do something like this, which is awesome. So that's all. Well, the bar is much lower in the fact that, yeah, it's, it's easier, but at the same time, 
there's a lot of people who realize that the bar is lower and they're going out there and doing things that don't meet right standards but yeah do it well i mean here's the point to that too about opportunity calls this you guys have been doing it for a while you've got a following i mean your discord shows that as well you're not a fly-by-night operation he's just trying to throw something together <laughs> or a bricks and mortar you know convention place that's trying to transition mm-hmm. but overcharging for it so um, you know, I think the same thing holds true when you're doing online. You don't have to do all online, even though it's easier. It still may not be worthwhile. But if, um, you know, look look at the history, look at people who are throwing the event, and if they have a following, um, and it looks like the audience is going to resonate with your game, then, you know, move forward with that. That would be my, that'd be my two cents. I agree. Can't wait right. to minute now. India, I'll let you do our announcements. Uh, our announcements. Well, okay. You know, the, all yeah. the stuff that you're good at plugging. That all I'm the good, good stuff. All the things that we're not talking about plugging things again, are we? Like last <laughs> episode. <laughs> Fill that hole. All right, you guys. Uh, so check out our Discord. It's down beneath right there. Discord.gg slash Indie Game Business. Also, if you are looking for um, some help with your game or some consul- consultation, go to powellgroupconsulting.com. Reach out to Jay on Discord. You know, go into the Discord. Uh, this is going to be live. Well, if you're hearing it from Anchor FM, it's it's already live there. Uh, Anchor.fm slash Indie Game Business. And um, I think that's it. I guess we'll be back next Wednesday. I'm sure yeah, we'll have something interesting. Back on your games, Indy and I do that. Do that occasionally. If, when we get two or three games coming in, and people say, "Hey, look, will you give us live feedback?" We, we will, will tell your baby you that it's ugly. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> you're rolling the dice there, but uh, we have no problem actually doing the live feedback. We're not going to shit all over your game, but we will give you like honest feedback. Hey, we'll take feedback good things. Is better than no sales, right? Yeah, it, yeah. That's true. That's true. And just remember, um, you know, what is the thing they say? It's like, uh, God, what is that saying? Someone was just saying it, you know, about uh, someone's baby. Oh, what was it? The other now I can't. I lost it. I lost it. <laughs> Never mind. It was like it was like holding on to it, falling in love with an idea, and just like this is what the idea is, and not accepting change. Right? What was that? There was a saying for that. Somebody just said it last or on Wednesday. Dude, I don't even know what I had for breakfast this morning. You're what did you have for I breakfast? I haven't had breakfast yet. Did you Did you have your pint already? Or? No, no, I haven't done that either. All Dude, right. One more time, what was that kid's show to watch also? Brain Games. Brain Games, okay, thank you. Oh, wait, Brain Ch- Ah, shit, hold on, Charleston, now you got me worried. Because <laughs> um. I want to check that out. That sounds, that sounds awesome. I love psychology um, experiences, uh, experiments like that. Hold on, I may have lied. It may be Brain Child. Yeah, it's uh Brain Child. It's Brain Child, not Brain Games. Brain Child. Sweet. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and het- hatred therewith. Yes, that was the saying. Wow. That was pretty deep. I'm gonna have to like think about that all weekend. <laughs> 
that is pretty deep. Yeah. So thank you guys so much. Uh, remember, if you want to watch on any of the, uh, we're live Wednesdays and Fridays, you can watch on Twitch. You can watch on Mixer. You can watch on Facebook. LinkedIn, for some reason, is borking. Um, but yeah, just look up. We're getting type, closer to figuring out why, though. Yeah. So just indie game business. Just type it in there. Thank you guys so much. Stay safe, everybody. Thank you. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at indiegame.business.